Hello everybody, I'm Matt Micucci and you are listening to the Jazz Ace Podcast. Everybody, Jazz Asia Online Editor Matt Mikucci here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists on the jazz and creative music scene today. A series that we simply like to call the Jazz Ace Podcast. And it's brought to you in conjunction with Jazz Ace Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz Ace editors, and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. On this episode of the Jazz Ace Podcast, we are delighted to welcome the talented guitarist, composer and producer Ari Joshua. He joins us to share insights into his latest projects and the diverse musical offerings he has released throughout the year, each reflecting different sides of his creative personality and collaborations with remarkable musicians including the likes of Billy Martin and John Medeski and the track that you are hearing right now, Slow Mine. During our conversation, we'll also discuss Joshua's involvement with The Music Factory, a music school that he set up with a physical location in Seattle, Washington, and journey back to his formative years and the people who helped shape his passion and knowledge of jazz. So fire up on Audiotini and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Jazz Ace Podcast. Hello, Ari. Welcome to the Jazz Is Podcast. Oh, thank you for welcoming me, and it's great to be here. I'd just like to begin by asking the artists I speak with to share a memory with us of uh, from early childhood or early life of when they distinctly remember awakening to the beauty and power of music, and maybe also mm. a memory that when they think back to it, they realize, hmm, you know, I might want to become a musician when I grow up. It's a great question. I have to tell you that uh, my my grandmother um, lived on we, my family's from Cape Town and South Africa, and my grandmother lived in this area called Sea Point, which was like kind of on the tip of of Africa of Cape Town. You know, it's like just right on the beach, and she has this apartment, and it's these are old apartments that are still there, and um, I still remember like visiting there. I mean, we we moved to the states when I was really young, like say four years old or something, you know, lived in Hershey and in, in around New York. And, and we would go back every, every year to see family. And I have these distinct memories of going back, but this memory is from before age four, maybe three or, 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 or two. And it's a memory, but it's, it's also something that people would tell me. But on my first birthday, two of my uncles, one gave me one of those Fisher Price record players. Right. And one gave me like a teddy bear chair, which I still have both those. Um, but my grandmother said that one of my first words was music because um, she had a record player in her apartment and I would, you know, go up the elevator and go down the hall. And as soon as I went in, the first thing I would do would, would be run to the record player. And, and she said, I'd say mimic. So that's, that's, that's early on. That's pretty, pretty early. I don't, I don't know how much earlier these things go, but it's it's kind of both a memory, but it's also like a story that I've been told my whole life that just always made sense. I love the way you also refer to the Fisher Price uh, vinyl record player because uh, 
I, when I was a kid, had the vinyl, uh, the Fisher Price cassette player, and I think uh, Fisher Price might not get enough credit for getting people into music early in life. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, well, you know, when you're when you're that young, and something I feel strongly about, but I think you're really in tune to like little subtle energies and frequencies and and feelings, and I know a lot of the complexities of what music is goes over a lot of really young people's heads, but I think it's affecting them in a way that's really unique and special that, you know, doesn't necessarily carry over to adulthood. And, you know, yeah, Fisher Price is it's right in there. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, uh, well, then when did you pick up the, the guitar the first time? Yeah. So as far back as I can remember, I asked my parents if I could play guitar. Mm. We were, you know, Im- I guess immigrants, I guess. So we didn't really have a lot of money and, you know, they're, they were just, figuring stuff out. And my parents also didn't really understand like how much I wanted to play. And it wasn't until I was like 12 or so that actually a neighbor up the street who I'm still friends with um, bought me my first instrument, um, which was a guitar. But my parents did attempt to get me piano lessons. And from what I remember, I picked up, um, I picked up pretty quick on piano and learned, you know, stuff, but I, I, I just didn't really want to read the music and I just wanted to make my own music. And, um, I had a piano in my room for years before I got a guitar and this, this neighbor gave me the guitar and I just instantly fell in love with it. My, my dad had a really great record collection and my grandfather also was really into jazz. Um, so those, so every time my grandfather would come and visit, he would actually just like nonstop be recording the radio station. Cause he didn't have the radio station overseas. You know what I mean? On cassette tape. So he actually, like when he died, he left me a suitcase of just local jazz radio cassette tapes. Wow. I think I resonated a lot with like the blues and Jimi Hendrix, especially like there was something about Jimi Hendrix that, you know, I think it, I think a lot of guitar players kind of get into things through him because of his just dynamic capabilities. But there was a combination of that. And then at the same time, all that was happening, you know, I'm talking about like sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, so uh, I was in the Pacific Northwest and at the same time, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden were just kind of cropping up as these like global phenomenons. And so um, I think that, you know, seeing those groups at a really young age and having this blues Hendrix background lit a huge fire inside of me. And, you know, the, the progression of things was so quick because, you know, I, I got an instrument, I learned how to play. Um, I studied like blues and stuff. And I, I learned this popular, this grunge kind of music that was happening around me through the emotions of it. And then, you know, that's like sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and then ninth grade, boom, I'm in jazz band at, in high school. And, you know, I'm hanging out with saxophone players and trumpet players and they're like, you know, why can't you play this progression? And I'm like, I don't even know these, what this means at F13 or, a, you know, yeah. um, and the horn players that I was in school with were really, really good for, you know, being in ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Like these were really amazing players and a couple of them just really took me under their wing and the, the director was amazing. And I would go to people's houses and they would be, you know, introducing me to records, you know, like just, this is Miles Davis and you got to know this and you got to know this and you should really check out Jimmy Smith because, you know, 
it's a little bit more bluesy and accessible. So, you know, that's kind of like the, 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 the epicenter there. No, but it's interesting because, you know, you did have also that desire to learn then because, you know, a lot of the time when people are confronted with maybe peers who are uh, more into the musical theory side of things and like, or even just know how to do it, then, uh, you know, you can either get the urge to learn or you can just go like, this is too hard for me. I'm just not going to bother. But obviously there was something inside of you that made you want to do it. Yeah, that's a great perspective or great. Yeah, because, like, you know, it makes me think like before I played music a lot in that way, I was like obsessed with Michael Jordan. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people from my generation, um, you know, had that like, you know, there's that great thing on HBO, that winning time. Have you have you checked this out at all? I mean, um, Robert did the music for it. Yeah. And it's uh, it's like uh, about like, you know, the Lakers and it's kind of before Jordan. But, you know, wanting to like be like Michael was like you had to like want it. You know, <laughs> you had to like play with your friends outside after school and during lunch. And, you know, you're talking about the games that you watched last night and moves that people made and you're practicing like three sixties and stuff like that. And you're like in fifth grade, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think that same kind of desire to do something great was just already inherently inside, inside of me when, when I had access to people who knew how to do, do this art, you know? Yeah. And then of course, like, you know, it's, it's also about the people you meet. You're talking about people who would introduce you to musicians you know, and just show you some uh, great music, introduce you to some great music. So I guess also in your formative years, it's also about them. And it's also about the mentors, right? You, that you meet along the way. I had incredible mentors all along the way. Our high school situation was just incredibly ripe for, yeah, for development because there were these, you know, 12th grade, 11th grade, 10th graders that, you know, had been playing this big band music. And if I think about it, it was also just so cool because I think about like Coltrane or miles and all these, just all of them. And I, and I read their biographies and it's like, they all kind of start in the thirties, forties, fifties playing in big bands. It's like someone's big band that they're getting into. And, you know, for them, that was like their twenties to, you know, to early thirties or whatever, um, or whatever it was. But for us, it was our fourteens to eighteens. But we were playing like all big band, like all Count Basie, all Duke Ellington, like really not a lot of modern stuff. It was pretty just Basie and Ellington. But you got to love Basie and Ellington too, right? I mean, it was just such an amazing discovery coming from blues and psychedelic rock and grunge and loving the music so much and then getting and then seeing jazz. It's like being in a, uh, you know, an ocean of possibilities of, you know, artistic canvases. Well, I, I, I would love to get back to that as well uh, because some of the styles and genres that you mentioned continue to influence you to this day and I can hear that influence in some of the music that you released recently. But but I also wanted to ask you, just in talking about, you said that it was a good environment to, you know, to, to develop as a musician in your formative years that you found yourself in during your high school years and you know, around those times. So do those experiments experiences that you have then also encourage you, you know, in your work as a music educator now and in your work in with the, the music factory too, which you, 
which is uh, now in its 15th year, I believe. Um, I mean, there's just like no way they can't. It's like, um, you know, did all the food that I ate growing up help me grow muscles and uh, all the oxygen that I breathed? I mean, it was, uh, you know, I think, yeah, but I mean, I think I had a unique, like, you know, my high school band director was Scott Brown and he was, to his credit, one of the, one of the best teachers I've ever had. And I've had a lot of mentors and teachers and across the way we had Clarence Acox, who was a drummer Mm. and he led the other big band and we had these rival big bands going on. So we would see each other play and then, you know, show up at these competitions, you know, kind of thing. And, um, Scott, you know, took us to Europe and we played at North sea jazz festival. We played at the Montreux jazz festival. Um, so we had a tour to Europe and Mexico like three times, you know, by the time we were seniors, and he was like one of these guys, he was never really like getting on us about playing what was on the page perfectly. Although if like someone was out of tune, he would definitely call them out. Like if somebody was like playing the wrong part or he would just call them out and like, it, it would be like an entire, you know, imagine like 45 to an hour a day for four years of your life, five days a week. And all you're doing is Ellington and, Basie, you know what I mean? With someone who, so if you're out of tune, he, he would use the entire 45 minutes just on you if you weren't playing it right. So, but you, but his whole thing was like, you guys like listen to the recordings, like, and if we had a show, he'd be like, like, I don't care about anything. Just like put love into it and swing your asses off and just put love into it. You know, to have a teacher like that was you know, for, for, for four years, every day. Um, and then all the shows and everything. Yeah. Um, and then I had this teacher, Milo Peterson growing up who basically, I mean, he would kind of kick my ass. In fact, a lot of like, there's two different kinds of teachers. There's like an, a teacher that will inspire and a teacher that will kick your ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to go back to what you're saying, I think another thing I could say is having had all these teachers, you know, in high school, and then going to the new school and Mason Gross and, and Rutgers for, you know, for, for a short period there, I got to experience like the full range of what a teacher can do. So I had players that were legendary, you know, players that were not great teachers. You know, I had teach, I had teachers that were not really legendary players, but were incredible teachers. And then I had teachers that were in between that were like, you know, teaching like life lessons that were so much bigger than the music. And I think all of that distills down to who I am and why I'm doing what I'm doing when I think about it. Like it's, it's less about, you know, the occupation side of it. It's more about the mission really, because it affected me in such a positive way. Does that mean also like a dynamic approach to music? Because, you know, you're not just somebody who performs or even composers or, you know, fits into all these different categories or even a music educator, but it's it's someone who's just always in music. And so everything you do is sort of somehow linked with music. I mean, there's no doubt. I live for like, you know, finding ways to, to connect to, you know, a greater cause. And uh, I feel as though, um, I've done an incredible amount of groundwork over the years and I feel more and more organically and naturally like, you know, what's left to do is to kind of like just figure out how to reach more people hmm. with, with uh, the mission and, and, 
you know, I think ideally it's through composing and, and playing. Um, but you know, the education as well, like is, is a huge part of it too. Yeah. It's just all, it is all just tied together. Uh, exactly. Uh, and that sort of, uh, you know, uh, I, I would love to talk about as well, the music factor, because there's the record label side of it. And then there's the music school. So if you were to kind of, uh, think of what the, the mission statement of the music factory is, or even the specific reason why it's called the music factory, what would that be? Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, I, I have it written down several different times, several ways, right. but I don't have it memorized or anything, but it's essentially to meet every student where they're at, that everyone who walks in the door is in the perfect place. And for whatever reason they're walking through that door is the perfect reason. Mm-hmm. And, um, our teachers in my ideal situation is are, are there to teach not just music lessons, but life lessons. So it's like we teach life lessons through music. And what that means is that if somebody comes in the door and they have no desire at all to be a professional musician, they're still in the right place. And if they don't really necessarily want to practice five hours a day, um, they're still in the right place because there's so much they're going to get out of hanging out with, a mentor once a week um, who's going to help them uh, progress at the pace that they're comfortable progressing. Um, and they're going to learn lessons that, that are going to go stay with them for the rest of their lives. And they're always going to remember their teacher. And um, now on the other hand, I have no problem with someone walking in the door saying, I want to be, you know, the greatest next jazz artist on the planet or whatever, you know, whatever, I don't care whatever they want to do that person's also in the right place. Like we have the right teachers for that too. And um, we can identify where their weaknesses are and help them, you know, um, achieve the goals they want to achieve really one week at a time. And I think that's kind of like what the teacher's job is, is to be able to um, intuitively with their life experience, assess where somebody is when they walk in the door Mm -hmm. after about an hour and be able to right away, start giving them the work that they need to do to get to the next level. As far as the, the name, I mean, it kind of just came to me, you know, I was really like loved that movie, Charlie and the chocolate factory when I was a kid, probably the good version, Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The building we have kind of has this like long walkway uh-huh. that I imagined like being like a red carpet walkway. And then uh-huh. um, I just kind of envisioned the, the factory and you know, notes coming out of it. But, um, you know, we, we create new music by sharing the skills of music and then giving people the tools to do it. And at the same time, we also give, you know, low talented musicians the opportunity to make a living. That's a fair living wage. And, um, this helps them to, you know, go on and make their own music as well and, and, and have something they can do. So it's completely holistic. And then, you know, as far as it being a label, I mean, I would go in that building and practice for, you know, five, 10 hours a day for entire, you know, years of my life. Um, so I was, you know, writing music in there and to where we are now is I would love to see a franchise situation. I would love to empower other people to open up other music factories in other cities. Um, I think there could definitely be one in every state, um, at least, you know, a couple, couple key places. And I, I would love to provide the blue, the blueprint and and, um, and have it keep growing.
The track you are hearing is Ari Joshua's Dragon Slayer, featuring John Modeski and Billy Martin and paying tribute to Alvin Jones. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out our Jazz A's Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz A's editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we cover in the print version of Jazz A's, jazzaise.com and these Jazz A's podcasts. Go to jazzaise.com and click on Join Vinyl Club. And now, back to our conversation with Ari Joshua. Uh, but let's talk about uh, the music that you've released over the past uh, months, over the past while, and will continue to release throughout 2023. It's been uh, pretty intense in the sense that uh, there have been you've released kind of uh, singles and e- EPs, uh, diverse and in you know in styles and um, lengths too so it's almost difficult to to ask us a specific question about it but i did want to ask you just out of curiosity do you prefer to to release music in this way rather than to follow the standard structure of album preceded by maybe you know a couple of singles before the release of the album Uh, do you find this more stimulating for you I think that the industry has just changed so much. And I I think it's well known amongst all artists and all people in the industry that there's a lot of things with the industry that are really not working properly right now. I think um, there needs to be some oversight and, you know, an overhaul and a relook at at how we're treating artists and musicians and um, how our financial systems are set up for, you know, tech companies to basically kind of um, own just a lion's share of, of what's going on. Um, it's no different than, you know, what would happen with labels, but, and I can't sort of speak to what the feeling of being on a label and making an album properly, the way it was done in the nineties, the eighties, the seventies, the sixties, the fifties, the forties, the thirties, the twenties, um, maybe even like the early two thousands. Um, that was not an experience that I was, you know, fortunate to, to have, um, had I put out an album, um, on a label that with with great players that was potentially treated properly, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I might have some sort of uh, memory or 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 guideposts as to how to do that and get the most out of it. But you know, my experience personally has been um, that even a very very hardworking full time professional musician is 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 going to struggle to be able to pay all their bills. Um, and support um, a family and to also be able to go into a a nice recording studio and get great players and make a great recording and then put the hours needed to to mix and master it to get it to sound the way they want to Mm -hmm. and then on top of that to have great artwork and then to print it and then to send it out to everywhere and then to do a tour which again with the gas and the hotels is also not necessarily going to add up so you can see where i'm going uh uh, for me, um, it's just been a necessity, kind of like how bebop was the, the answer to the economic situation. You know, big bands weren't hireable, so people got faster and more aggressive and there were not as much resources. Um, for me, you know, to go to write a song and to be emotionally attached to what that song's capable of doing and then to batch that with 10 other songs and then 
and and have the push for that to give it what I think it needs. I don't have the resources yet, but um, it's a little bit more realistic for me to put that 10 to 50 hours per song in uh, in a studio with people that I think can do a good job. <laughs> and then, you know, just have that one song done. And then to be able to put a little bit of energy behind it to give it a good send off. So it's just, that's how I've been doing it. Um, and you know, what I love about it is it gives me a chance to learn more about how the industry works. Cause each time I put a song out, I've got new people that I'm sending it to. And I find out more people that, um, respond to it positively. And then they become people that I can, you know, reach out to in future. And I get more and more reviews and write-ups each song. And I just love putting the artwork together and I love sharing the music. So so you're overlooking all the aspects of it, basically. I think every time I do everything, I'm overlooking all the aspects. It's right. like a, a blessing and a curse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, then on yeah. the on the plus uh, side of things, though, uh, it must be uh, fulfilling to kind of pursue because each of these tracks has its own character, its own identity. So it probably coincides with your interests uh, close to the time in which it is finally recorded. Right. So you can switch from one style to something maybe that's that's uh, different. Yeah. As far as the styles go, I think a lot of that just happens in the moment in in the studio when the music is initially being tracked mm. actually this is something that like like i just got the chance to work with uh john Badesky and billy martin out there in, in woodstock and they're the, you know the new song i've got coming out yeah is dragons it's with those guys but that's one of the things that like i learned from you know they're i think they're brilliant they're just genius artists and this makes me think of something that billy martin said which I wanted to show them how much I, I really love them. And I wanted to go into the studio like the way I would imagine any of my, my heroes would go in the studio. And so I prepared like 20, 25 new, new songs, you know, like I just wrote like 25 new songs and then I demoed them out mostly just with loops, you know, just melody, A section, B section. And I made a folder and I sent it to Billy and I'm like, these are the songs that we're, you know, maybe going to do. And, and he was like, kind of like, you know, it, it, nothing really matters except for like how we feel in, in the moment when we record. And he's like, in the moment when we record, you can pick any of these ideas and we'll put our full attention into it. But as far as, you know, the pre-planning side of it, it's, it's less, has less weight in, in his artistic mind. And to his credit, like those guys, like when we started working on something, they were just right there, you know, and I've had that experience with every great musician I've played with, like, regardless of the style, once you say you're going to commit this to the canvas, like we're right here, we're going to do this thing and we're going to do it as best we can. And that feeling I think can shift from one song to another within like a two hour period, you know, say you have like two hours, you're working on one song. It's in this style we're doing it like this. And literally we're jumping to the next one. Usually what happens is I have a session and record like multiple styles in one day. And then later when I have time to do the studio side, I kind of pick a song out of the grab bag. What's speaking to me right now, again, in the moment. And then I just work on that. And there not, isn't necessarily any other like guiding force as to, the order of it's just the, the song gets done when it gets done. Oh. And then 
and I get the artwork and then I start getting it out there. But then let's take, for, for example, Dragon's Lair. Uh, from the mm-hmm. title, though, it seems to suggest something that's even visually, or there's a story behind it, like uh, almost thematically, but also imaginatively uh, suggested by the title itself. So is that something that comes later or is that something that you begin the process with? You know, I think the, um, the feeling and the story kind of come at once when the music comes for me. And I tend to find that my best writing kind of like does just come out of thin air, kind of like um, I'm just kind of like in that moment, in that time, whatever's going on in my life. And then I just kind of start playing and like one note just leads to another note or one chord leads to another chord. And then the whole thing kind of just unfolds. Usually I think it's very similar to like what I would imagine an artist because it's sort of like, you know, say I have a room with 10 different canvases in it and it's like, okay, well, I'm going to go on this canvas and this is going to be like, imagine if you're Picasso and you're like, this is going to be a lady. This is like the lady that I am romantically involved with. And I'm going to put these exaggerations in these ways because they have these representations to me. And then he might do that for five hours or two days. And then the muse is, is gone. And then he moves on to the next canvas and there's something else that happened another day, but then he might go back to the first painting and, and touch it up. But there's definitely, it definitely kind of just comes to me in the moment. And, you know, something I heard Wynton Marsalis say once, you know, he, he would, he was doing a master class and he said, um, he's told a group, like if he sings, da, 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 like, what do you think? Well, you think da, 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 you know what I mean? It's like a sentence, And then the sentence has a logical answer. And I think that's what's going on when, when I'm thinking of the music and then whatever's else is going on in my life is just seeping in. I wanted to also talk, get, get into uh, your influences some more. Another track that uh, at the time of recording anyways, hasn't been released yet. Although there is an extended version of it, which I listened to and I, and I, and I loved because uh, Cambo Wambo, I loved it because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm also a huge fan of Afrobeat. And I just wondered whether Afrobeat was yeah. also one of the, uh, a major influence uh, for what you do. So for me, um, every, every music is a major influence. Um, I think just the same way every color is an influence for a visual artist, um, every note and every non-note and um, every style is an influence. And then within that style, what transcends the style is what the artist is actually feeling as a human being. But um, Afrobeat, of course, huge influence. And that um, recording was done in Vermont with uh, Ray Pachkowski and Russ Lawton, who are uh, Trina Stagios um, drummer and keyboard player for the last 20 years. And as much as I love all music and love, you know, jazz, um, I also really love the psychedelic kind of Grateful Dead fish um, world of improv and, and where they've taken the music in new directions. And Trey's always been a big influence of mine as well. And, working with those guys, um, that's kind of like the way they play with Trey. Like that's his, his sound. So it's sort of like if you're Miles Davis and you're going to go play with Prince, you're going to kind of do like a little bit more of a Prince approach. Right. Or if you're going to go play with, um, John McLaughlin, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, like it's just, so, you know, going to play with those guys in their neighborhood when I was writing music, I was writing music, thinking about those guys, what their neighborhood might be like, 
what the music I've heard them play in the past has made me feel. And that's like an interesting recording too, because um, um, there isn't really any guitar solo that I can remember in that track. It's like a 20 minute long track and we have a shorter one, Hmm. but it's just like, we went in the studio again, we looked at the music I brought in, we, you know, built it to the best we could or the way it naturally did in one to two takes, you know, that's like another thing. It's like the, the Mingus, you know, if you make a mistake and you do more than two or three takes, you're not, it's, it's not happening anymore. Right. Um, so, you know, we did one to two takes and I think it was the first take after we got the melody. Um, I played the melody a few times and we just jammed and the jam just happened to be more of a rhythm rhythmic approach, uh, jam. And I thought it was so cool that I put out the extended version and, and, uh, and yeah, in a couple of days, I think on the 22nd, the edited more radio friendly one will come out. But yeah. Is it difficult to edit it down to uh, something, as you said, more radio friendly? Um, I think it's a really beautiful and interesting process. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely plays into though people understanding how much goes into a, a song for, for at least for me or for, you know, like, um, again, it's like in the, it's like in the 50 hours per song like minimum, bare minimum, you know? So it means I'm listening to it a lot, thinking about it. And I'm probably trying to cut it in certain areas or, you know, I'm thinking about, should we do some overdubs or, you know, in some cases, like just the other day, I was in a studio working with a friend of mine and we took a song that had a full arrangement that was just recorded live. And he like found these loops of the drums from that track and he like rebuilt it into an AABA and it's like, it was an eight minute song. It's going to be a two, three minute song. You know, mm-hmm. I think about like what Jimi Hendrix did or the Beatles, you know, um, in the studio, or maybe even what Duke Ellington was thinking about when he was putting it on paper or Count Basie. Like, I don't think Count Basie or Duke Ellington, I mean, they had radio, they were making records, like how much is going to fit on a record, you know? So even what they're doing, you know, on the paper at that point was already, cutting in a way. Yeah. Um, and then I think about, you know, Hendrix and he would, you know, some of these albums are like 33 minutes long, but they're like 10 songs and they're like the best 10 songs I've ever heard. And there's so much packed into those song in those three minutes, you know? So mm-hmm. I like doing both and it's never fun cutting stuff out. Exactly. It's never, it's not necessarily the funnest part for me. It's not as fun as playing, but it's a great thrill to think about, um, that someone might listen to it and, you know, enjoy it even 10% as much as I enjoy it. Uh, we talked about the, the process in the studio, but uh, what about the live performance? Do you, how do you approach that, that side of things? You want to put yourself in a situation with, with players that you can trust. You want to really be able to, to just completely let go, kind of like skydiving, you know? You're like, okay, I'm going to skydive. I could totally do this. This is going to be fun. Then you go down to the place and they teach you the rules and you trust that, you know, you want to go up with someone who knows how to fly the plane and the guy who's going to jump off with you, you're probably attached to them the first time or whatever. Um, and you go up and you're kind of scared in the plane a little bit, but as soon as you jump off, like it's kind of out of your control a little bit, like it's kind of up to gravity. I think I just approach it by trying to let go as much as possible and ride the music like a wave um, and imagine that the wave is not in your control, but you, you do have the skills that you've developed to make sure that you don't sink. And, you know, ideally you're with people that also 
know how to not sink in whatever the waves do. And, you know, if you get to the point where you're a master playing with other masters, then no longer is it an issue of whether you can stay afloat in the waves. It's more of an issue of like how far down do you want to dive and how fast you want to go underwater. And then when you come up, like, you know, are you going to jump out of the water and make a big splash or are you going to jump out of the water and maybe you can fly? I mean, (laughs) you know, so just by letting go and try to trust your Jedi skills. Where does the audience fit into that equation? Um, I think the audience is is as important or more important than the players because without getting too weird about saying this, but you know, they're like, they're discovering things about quantum physics in the quantum realm. And they're saying that like, there's this concept where like things don't exist until they're observed. Um, Like literally if you observe something, it's going to do something predictable. But then as soon as you stop observing it, it's like not even there anymore. It's like, it's now doing something else. And I think uh, the audience is, for me, like if they're really listening and they're, and they're there with me, it allows me to kind of get inside a little bit more inside myself and reach down deeper and um, put more juice into each, each note. And the more that they're willing and interested in participating in that, the more, the more of a chain reaction it can cause, which can then lead to the players on the stage having more of a chain reaction, which, allows me to really do a dance. Ari, we talked about some of the music that you will be sure releasing shortly and uh, some of the music that you released uh, throughout 2023, but what's next, uh, generally speaking, and how can people keep up with all things Ari Joshua? Uh, I have about 300 songs written and, uh, you know, probably like 200 recorded and that need to be mixed and that need artwork. Wow. As soon as I get those out, um, I'll write another 200. <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, there's going to be, there's a huge backlog of material. There was also a period of time where I really wasn't engaging in, in the industry to the extent that I am now and was really just focusing on developing the school and just working on myself as a person. But, you know, I think people can expect a, a steady flow of between one and two new songs a month going on as, lo- as far as I can tell. And then, you know, yeah, I'd love to ramp up to having um, a label have interest in a, in a full album. I would love to write a full album, record it and hand it off to somebody. And um, I would love to travel and, and tour a little bit more now. You know, starting to figure out how to now that things are really stabilized and and falling into place the way they are now going out to different markets and different cities and and different areas and and playing more shows or, you know, visiting local schools or universities and and talking, you know, if anybody is listening and runs a jazz festival or has a school um, that they're interested in having me come to, I'd, I'd love to uh, come visit and see what's going on in different areas. And um, that's, that's basically it, you know, Um, just, just really, really feeling optimistic at this point having kind of built a a base uh over many many years and um excited about kind of the cup overflowing right and so what is the best way to keep for people to keep up with all uh, with news oh, yeah. about yeah yeah i guess the best way to keep in touch is to go to uh, arijoshua.com 
which is just a website. Um, if you want to look for reviews and write-ups and stuff, I kind of keep a blog um, and I'll make, keep that updated and they can join the mailing list there. Um, if they were to go there and hit the contact button, it'll sign you up for the mailing list and you'll get, you know, updates and stuff. Um, and then if you want lessons, uh, right now, music factory, nw.com, uh, we can set anyone up with online lessons. We can set up your kids with online lessons. Uh, we've got 15 teachers that are just ready to go that really would love to have the work and, um, do a great job and have a, a lot of experience. Um, and then, you know, I'm also hoping to kind of expand and offer more online zoom style lessons, uh, and reach more, more areas. So, cause that's something that people can take anywhere. For, so for now going to our website and just filling out the form, but, um, I think in the next year, cause probably someone will listen to this and it'll be a year or two from now. Um, we'll have a more robust, you know, online portal for, for, to reach people in, in different areas and, um, hopefully have some, you know, franchises and stuff coming. Um, so those are the two areas. Um, you can also go to my social media, which is just Ari Joshua searchable, you know, usually like whatever it is backslash Ari Joshua, or, you know, you can search me and it should be able to come up. And then, yeah, for the label music factory records, um, we, we don't have a website yet, but we have, um, Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. Thanks very much, Harry. Yeah. Thank you so much. you enjoyed our conversation with Ari Joshua and I urge you to check out AriJoshua.com for more of his music and merchandise as well as MusicFactoryNW.com for music lessons. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out our Jazz Ace Vinyl Club. Join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition color vinyl albums mailed directly to you. Just go to JazzAce.com and click on Join Vinyl Club for more. And as Let's Do It Right Now by Ari Joshua plays us out, I encourage you to keep an eye out for more Jazz Ace podcasts, our print magazine, and other great content available to you on our regularly updated website, jazzace.com. And if you like what you see, you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt McCucci signing off. See you soon. Music